0: Parent Show, sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family lawyers. See RaidenSolicitors.co.uk.
1: Hello and welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Varolim 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia Elkoury and as part of our our February focus on ADHD, I'm really, really delighted to have Rachel Grant-Waters joining us on The Parents Show this evening. Rachel, how are you doing and welcome to The Parents Show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very well, thank you.
1: So I'm going to tell my listeners a little bit, but I'd love you to tell us even more. So Rachel Grant-Waters is an SEN teaching assistant at Abingdon House School and College. So tell us a little bit more about your experience with ADHD and SEN teaching.
2: So I was diagnosed with ADHD uh, February 20th, 2020. So it's not been long. And it was really as a result of working at Abingdon. I, I came to work at Abingdon knowing that I was neurodivergent. I knew that I had dyslexia and dyspraxia. And I was never kind of embarrassed about that coming to work here, but it was being more around the students and seeing their struggles and how much they had mirrored mine that prompted me to go and seek an ADHD assessment. And it clarified so much. It lifted the veil getting my diagnosis. And it was a very positive experience overall. I mean, there was definitely a grieving process that came with it, probably just really grieving for the missed opportunities that I'd had as a child at school myself, but it made me also feel very determined that when I came back to Abingdon, when I came back to the classroom, that I could do something more for our students. And it was really my colleague Nadia who pointed out the advantage to me. She really highlighted the fact that I would have just that little bit of extra empathy that would go a long way with our ADHD cohorts. And just being able to kind of put that into practice and to be able to really identify with their challenges and be a bit more I suppose competent in supporting those students specifically was a real confidence booster for me after coming back from that diagnosis.
1: I can imagine and but I'd imagine it's also incredibly valuable to the students in your school knowing it's not just empathy you have real understanding.
2: I think for me the the best part of it is being able to model success in a way, success looks different to everybody. And you know, so many students, I'm sure, just not in in Abingdon, but you know, nationwide, would say, you know, when they grow up, they they want to be a YouTuber or they want to be a gamer or they want to be a content creator. And being able to sort of model what success looks like to them from a neurodivergent point of view, for me, is fantastic because some days you win all the battles, you you come home with e- endless energy, you're you're super kind of ready for anything. And then there are other days where you made it through the day and that's your success. And for them to see that neurodivergency, but also ADHD lives outside of the classroom and is out in the world, that there are grown-ups who are having similar challenges to them. For me, I think that's probably the most valuable thing that I would bring to the classroom in terms of having ADHD and I'm super open about it all of the kids know and occasionally they'll reference back to it and that always just kind of touches my heart just a little bit when they say oh but miss you know you get it or yeah well miss you're like me right you have ADHD or or you're dyslexic like me or you're dyspraxic like me and that is just such a lovely moment of kind of bonding and I think you know I didn't have that when I was their age. You know, neurodiversity wasn't really a thing 20 odd years ago. I always remember being in secondary school and seeing posters around for people who were dyslexic and they were all men. And one of them was an actor and one of them was a singer and I didn't relate to them at all. I didn't have a visual reference or I didn't see ADHD being modeled in a successful way growing up. It was something that came with a lot of stigma and there was just this reputation around students who had ADHD That made you all a little bit wary, I suppose. So it's nice for me to be able to kind of model what ADHD looks like as an adult successfully.
1: Model is the word. I was just thinking it must be wonderful for the kids to see in action and be able to aspire, you know, because I think one of the subjects I want to talk to you about is how ADHD impacts girls and boys, and particularly you as a woman with ADHD as a role model in schools must be doubly valuable.
2: I mean, the SCN world is still quite male heavy in terms of girls who are diagnosed with neurodivergent learning profiles. I think there is still a shortfall, but that is changing so, so rapidly. And we're seeing more and more female students feeling much more confident around talking about their their neurodiversity or their, their spiky learning profiles and being more comfortable in using the terminology and being able to advocate for themselves. It's such a responsibility on adults to advocate for students, being if they're a teacher, if they're a parent, they'd be able to speak up for their students and fight for them. But now more and more, there's female students being able to really identify where their learning challenges are and their, what their spiky profile looks like, what their ADHD means to them, and actually actively take part in that community. To me, that's been one of the best parts of getting my diagnosis. There is such an active community of women with ADHD out there a- across the entire country, let alone world, There's, there is so much going on. And being able to sort of invite our students to take part in that, to really embrace their neurodiversity and, and find common bonds within that, that's super important for their mental health and their well being. To be able to communicate it is so
1: important. Brilliant, thanks, Rachel. So, what about the difference between how it impacts on boys and girls, or young women and young men?
2: Sure. I mean, I think I mean you've probably heard from other con- contributors, but the male and female brain is different, and neurologically, how our brains process information is different. I think one of the the things that I'm probably remember hearing the most growing up is it's harder to diagnose things in girls than it is boys, and that's just simply not true. We just have a better understanding of it now. 20 years later than we did then. And in terms of how ADHD can present in both girls and boys, you're more likely to see in girls a bit more of the inattentive side of ADHD. Girls are more frequently referred to as being daydreamers less that hyperactivity but the thing is the hyperactivity element is subjective what can look like daydreaming can be racing thoughts it can be hyper focus on on a specific thing that's happened or will happen and that inattentive element where it's culturally more acceptable to view girls as, as daydreamers means that often that's where those little diagnostic elements are being missed out on if that makes sense so with boys, you're classically like to see the kind of Dennis the Menace, ADHD, kind of bouncy, kind of physical side of hyperactivity. With girls, that inattentive side, the daydreamy side. Then there's also the possibility of that being combined, where in moments where they're very alert and they can be a little bit more hyperactive, moving from one subject to the next and they're talking, moving from one part of their room to another, not being able to keep still. But oftentimes with girls, it's overlooked as, oh, well, they're just daydreamers.
1: I think that's a great phrase to help us understand, you know, what, what exactly it is you're talking about. And also parents who are listening to help maybe identify a child that hasn't been diagnosed, a young girl. or. I think we're seeing
2: way more of that now post lockdown. I think parents have had a real bird's eye view of their children's learning styles and the way that they approach their work and tackle challenges. I think that's probably prompted A lot more of them to pick up on things that maybe have been missed before. I think, ah, right, okay, here is an opportunity for me to support my child's learning. Maybe I can do a bit of a look into maybe getting them assessed. Maybe I can, you know, do a little bit more to speak to my child's teacher or speak to somebody at the school about it. And I think more and more we're seeing that, and more and more we're seeing that in girls.
1: And I think a lot of parents will be as surprised as I was when I first heard it that ADHD could manifest itself as daydreaming in a girl. It's probably not the word I would have associated with Partly it at because all.
2: Because the, the you know the, the title attention deficit hyperactivity disorder really doesn't tell you what you need to know. In all honesty, you know, in terms of how do you quantify attention? How do you quantify attention in in sense that there can be a deficit of it? And often the idea of okay, well then an attention deficit being not paying attention, it's not necessarily that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is is as much about creating motivation and reward for that motivation as it is about the idea of quantifying how much attention to pay at at any one thing at any one time. And if you're not providing that scaffolded framework of of motivation to learn, and if you're not reinforcing that learning with something positive, then where is the motivation? I mean, as an adult or a child, If we're not motivated to do something, even if it seems like the simplest task in the world, it's going to be that much harder for us to get up and do that thing. But providing the right framework, providing the right structure and the right motivation, there's really nothing we can't accomplish. And that's probably, I think, the biggest takeaway in understanding learning and living around ADHD is that ADHD doesn't mean that we can't learn or we can't accomplish. It's how we go about learning and how we go about accomplishing tasks that makes the difference. And it's people's perception of that is what will hold a child or an adult with ADHD back, not necessarily the ADHD itself. ADHD doesn't affect what you can learn or what you can do. It's more affects how you go about learning and how you go about doing.
1: Brilliant. Thanks so much, Rachel. And really, you're, you're on the front line. I think of you as being on the front line when it comes to SEN children. So I'd love to hear what you think are the biggest issues for our SEN children in the UK.
2: I think it's the, the biggest challenge for our SEND children currently is probably access to the right type of support and learning provision. There is such a swell in need for it, and need for support and having the right people in the right places to offer that support and offer that understanding. We're really seeing a turnaround in the fact that As an adult, I see more and more the opportunities for adults with neurodiversity to take part in things that really build upon their strengths and invite them to be part of a community. For the SCN community, I would love to see more of that. And I would love to see much more effort put into providing a framework for success and access to the right kind of learning provisions nationwide. I feel that very strongly. The, I love the idea of students being integrated in mainstream learning, but the current mainstream learning structure doesn't necessarily allow it. And the pressure put upon my mainstream colleagues to be able to differentiate learning and really support their SEN students in a, an environment that really isn't conducive to it just seems unfair because SEN teaching practice has not been gate-kept. We're not hiding anything you know, we love pairing up and teaming up with with mainstream schools and and offering them an insight into what we do. But what we do is in a framework physically that allows us to do it. One of the biggest things about ADHD is not just being distracted or daydream, but it's also processing sensory information, processing light and sound and And hearing movements, I mean, personally, I'm very audio sensitive, I find just the slightest kind of bit of noise can really distract me and make it just that little bit of an extra challenge to focus on the task in front of me. So imagine being a ADHD student with those kinds of like sensory stimulus going on around you with 30 odd other people around you, how difficult that would be. There is so much potential to create environments that are better suited to neurodivergent students, but... It has to come from the top down and the pressure that's put upon my teaching colleagues to kind of meet the needs of their SEM students when they physically don't have the resources to do it. It's unfortunate. It's a shame. And they they have my empathy and they have, I think I would be comfortable to say, they have the whole Sen sector support in striving to make
1: that happen. And I mean, you must see a difference when the proper framework is in place and when it's not. Can you kind of describe a little bit how much of a difference that can make? Absolutely,
2: I mean if we take Abingdon for example, so at Abingdon House School and College our class sizes don't go above 11 and we have a teacher and a TA in each class and that allows us to differentiate learning up to 10 different ways really taking into account our students' individual profiles It's such a privilege to be able to do that and to be able to have you know in our classrooms sensory equipment that helps our students learn, be it things like moving sit cushions, being able to use um, fidget tools, ear defenders, if there's too much noise in there, they're finding it distracting. But also actually having a person, our teaching assistants, but also our teachers, be able to go through movement breaks and sensory breaks with our students. And I know from mainstream colleagues that they don't necessarily always have a TA in the classroom. They don't always have the capacity to be able to take a student out for a movement break for five or 10 minutes as needed. The other thing is that what we're able to do at Abingdon is we have an integrated therapy approach. So we're working with occupational therapists and speech and language therapists in the life skills lessons, social skills lessons. We have a physiotherapist. We're able to offer that kind of integrated therapy approach to hone those skills and sharpen those skills up. So for future learning, we're able to do that from a young age. And I think having that kind of support in terms of therapy support in taking into consideration their mental health and wellbeing as well and being able to provide kind of wellbeing sessions and sessions around really giving them their self-confidence and understanding that their neurodiversity is not a weakness at all, that they can turn it into a strength, that they can then come out the other side, feeling really empowered with a skill set and being able to understand how their brain works is so val is so invaluable. It's a privilege to be able to, to work with our therapy team and that and to be able to work with our mental health and wellbeing being team to give our kids a real sense of confidence and self-worth.
1: But you must see a dramatic difference in the parents too, because I, I can only imagine with children who are so well catered to, they're going to be happier. And obviously, as a result, you'll have happier parents too. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Our parent community is fabulous. It really is fantastic. And they are very invested in their kids' learning. I think a lot of them have come from situations where previously they were battling against maybe a lack of empathy. Not necessarily a lack of wanting to help per se, but having their students coming, their children coming from schools who just weren't able to meet their needs and seeing the, the effect on their children's mental health and wellbeing. I think for them to then find their the students and our provision with our bespoke learning programs put together for their children, to, for them to be integrated and to you know, have a supportive social network at school with supportive adults and, and teachers who they can trust. And I think for them being able to see the difference that that makes. She just reinforces how much more that they want to support and advocate for their child to make, to kind of help them to keep going keep progressing keep learning i would say that overall we do have a very happy relationship with our parents and I definitely like speaking to our parents and being able to tell them how well that, their kids are doing in our lessons. It's always great to be able to say, you know, share that, sharing their successes and sharing their achievements with them. And I think, you know, we do have a very supportive parental community who are very active and we get a lot of positive feedback. And I think that just helps us as faculty, as staff to just feel that more motivated to just keep going and keep providing and stretching those kids giving them the best opportunities that we can.
1: I'm sure it just the relationships just reinforce each other and and I I can imagine from speaking to parents friends of mine who have children with ADHD you give them so much hope because I think that's quite often what's lacking with parents of children who have ADHD in a a mainstream school that maybe hasn't quite figured out how to best serve or build a framework for their child.
2: I think it can be very challenging for parents with students with ADHD because ADHD still does have that stigma attached to it. And in terms of understanding, when you're talking about ADHD, you're not specifically talking about a learning difficulty or a learning challenge. You're talking about a neurological developmental delay and that on top of the fact that their children they're not meant to have impulse control as children they're not meant to have those skills yet they're meant to learn those skills understanding that that development delay just takes them a little bit longer to get a hold of those skills just a, just a little bit longer and asking them to really fight against their own instincts and fight against their own neurology rather than finding a way to embrace it you know it's it's a tricky landscape to navigate And I think when you are combating that stigma, it takes its toll, not just on the child, but also on the parent. And having to almost be a teacher yourself in in explaining what that neurological difference is, it can be so wearing. I find myself, when I have to explain to people what ADHD means and what it means for me, it can be wearing. So I appreciate from a parent standpoint, how wearing it can be to become a teacher and explain to people, well, this is why ADHD, this is what ADHD looks like for my child. It may not look the same way to another person's child, but this is what ADHD means. And I can appreciate the, the effort that that takes.
1: Absolutely. And and that was part of the motivation for focusing on ADHD in February, because not just because of the need to support parents who have children with ADHD or the children themselves, but also to raise a little bit of awareness in the wider community so that people do understand because it must be tedious for parents to have to explain the same thing over and over again about their child. And that and that really leads into one of the last questions I wanted to ask you, which is that development of understanding from a wider community, because we've heard from various guests that quite often children with ADHD and as, as a result, their parents are quite isolated because of that still ongoing stigma. And I suppose I'd love to know what you can advise us parents who don't have children with ADHD about how best we can support our ADHD community as well.
2: I think it's a wonderful aspiration and I'm delighted that you feel so motivated to want to do that. I think in terms of better supporting that community of, of and helping to kind of reduce the isolation, I think one of the, the biggest things is, again, to kind of reinforce that ADHD is not a behaviour behavior is a way of communicating and children do not have the the vocabulary they don't have the ability to always communicate what it is that they're thinking what it is that they're feeling and so if you're seeing a negative behavior maybe think about the, the environment that they're in think about what is it that they're trying to communicate what is it that they're trying to process what is it that they want you to know and to remember that children can't fight against who they are they shouldn't have to so if you're finding it challenging to communicate with a child with ADHD, again, remember to get down to their level. Were you able to communicate at that age? I, I doubt it. I know I definitely wasn't. So depending on the age of the child, what is it that they might want to tell you? What is it that their behavior is showing you? And then provide a framework by which that they can have some downtime to maybe come back to being a little bit more level, maybe find them um, a way to tell you being through drawing, maybe tell you through kind of giving examples. A lot of the time ADHD kids get told that they're bossy because they're trying to take control of a situation or maybe provide them with a framework that they can then be more collaborative and maybe working together with with another student. Finding ways to help them to communicate, I think is, is the best way that we can support our students with ADHD because often they kids and they don't have the language and, and the ability to, but also providing them with some breakout space, just providing them with some space where they can go and zone out for a bit, where they don't constantly have to be paying attention to what's going on around them. Give their brains a little bit of a break. Their, their brains are working super hard. They're hearing instructions and they're they're hearing what's going on, but they're also processing sound and touch and all of their other sensory needs as well. So giving them a little bit of downtime space can often then just help them to then want to come back to the group and see what's going on and take part and maybe not feel like they're having to to constantly fight against their own brains
1: brilliant i love
2: the fight against their own brain it feels like honestly so much of the time with adhd you're fighting your own neurology to fit into what's going on around you you're fighting against yourself and just imagine the amount of energy that that takes constantly fighting a battle with your own brain to to be able to achieve the same as what you see around you and you can imagine how wearing that is and how how demoralizing that is if you're not able to feel like you're keeping up or feel like you're able to to really take part. And again, like I mean you've mentioned the isolation, it can be very isolating when you you feel like you're being left out for, for being who you are. And if especially if the ADHD is undiagnosed, by the time you reach the point where it is diagnosed, you've you've gone through a lot. And so when you find you have that diagnosis, you have that clarity, you have that 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 power that comes with that knowledge, wanting to share it, wanting to kind of Say, okay, well, well, this is why I'm struggling and have it believed and taken seriously as something that is more than just the behavior attached to it. I mean, I really think that that's probably looking back, the, the biggest challenge that I had as a kid growing up with ADHD is trying to communicate that I had a challenge, that I needed help with something and not having it be believed because my behavior didn't necessarily correlate with someone who was experiencing a challenge.
1: And it must be very rewarding for you to work in a school where you can be that difference because the children won't have to go through that kind of lack of confidence or lack of belief that that you did as a child.
2: I would say say it's okay for me to say this on behalf of all of my colleagues, but the biggest reward is definitely seeing a child step into their own selves and and become comfortable with their own selves and be able to kind of advocate for themselves and uh, Again, being able to use the right language. I didn't have that language when I was their age. So now that we're teaching them that language, teaching them ways that they can communicate what they need and giving them that that sense of power over it. Being able to say, no, I need to take a break. Being able to provide those frameworks, it's, it's really fantastic when you see them actually having the confidence to put
1: them into use. Brilliant. Rachel, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and thanks for the great work you're doing and continue to do. And uh, thanks for joining us on The Parents Show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hello and welcome to The Parents Show on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM. I'm Lydia El Khoury and tonight I feel extremely honoured that we have two of three authors featuring on The Parents Show who are I've just published a book called How to Cope When Your Children Can't. And I think if parents out there listening or anything like me, that title is going to grab you and pull you in and make you want to read it straight away because it sounds like exactly what I need. So in the studio with me, I've got Professor Roz Shafran, who is Chair in Translational Psychology, Population Policy and Practice at UCL. And she's also at the GOS Institute of Childhood Health. Um, The second author, Dr. Alice Wellham, is not joining us, but we will be hearing from Roz and the third author, which is Ursula Saunders, who is a fundraiser for an environmental charity and has worked for parenting and bereavement organisations previously. And she's the mother of two adult children. So Roz and Ursula, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on The Parents Show. Thanks for joining us. So, How to Cope When Your Children Can't. This is just such a brilliant title for a book. Can you tell us, let's start with you, Ursula, what inspired you to write this book? Or how did it come about?
3: Well, um, it came about probably about eight years ago and it came from a very, very painful place. So I can actually specifically remember when the idea came to me. So I was sitting in a lay-by outside my son's school. He had failed to transition to secondary school. I hadn't seen it coming. I mean, he had he'd had difficulties in year six, but I had no idea I, naively that any child could refuse to go to school. So for year seven it did not start well. I remember the very first day of secondary school, I had a group of children waiting to walk into school with him, and he was halfway up a tree in his pajamas, refusing to come down. And yeah, it just sort of you know we we had a had a dreadful period at that point. So I was waiting in this layby. And I dropped him in school and knew he'd come straight back out again. So, you know, I was waiting. And, you know, I did an awful lot of crying in the car at that point. And I Googled how to be happy when your child is sad. And what pinged straight back was how to help your unhappy child. So there was nothing. It was like, you know, computer says no, nothing came back. And obviously, I mean, we all know that expression, you are only as happy as your unhappiest child. It's incredibly true. You know, I was utter evidence of this. But at the same time, it did occur to me, you know, a small rational part of my mind thought, this is ridiculous, because I'm a complete mess. And I'm much less helpful to my child than I would be if I could get on top of myself at this point, if that makes sense. So Ros and I go back a very long way. We were very good friends at university. And I've been very lucky to have Ros and Alice, both um, psychologists in my life and friends. So I was able to go to them, you know, for sort of elite guidance. And to be incredibly honest with them as they were friends, but also know that I was actually getting expert information. So that was the genus of the book. And um, you know, the three of us have um, you know, it started eight years ago.
1: Brilliant. What a wonderful combination. And I think we've all been in your shoes at some point or another, Ursula. Roz, over over to you. What was the reason for you in, in writing this book?
0: The word that springs to mind is relatable. So as you say, Ursula's experience is universal, that we have all had, all parents have a child who has been unhappy at some point, and it has affected us profoundly. And I really wanted to write a book with Ursie that combined what I knew from psychological research, the techniques that have been shown to work, my area of expertise, but I wanted to take it beyond that with Ursie's personal experience and the experience of other parents to produce something that was a bit different, that had the personal experience, the personal stories, but also the evidence-based research techniques um, that have been shown to work.
1: That makes a huge amount of sense. And actually for us parents, hearing concrete examples brings brings it to life because as I say, we've we've all been, I think we've all been crying in the car at some point over something to do with our children. And um, I really like the subheading of the book, Comfort, Help and Hope for Parents. So is this what you got, Ursula, from your advice from Alice and and Ros?
3: It's what I got, but it's also what when we were discussing the book and we did this all on Zoom. You know, the three of us, the three of us have not got together at any point. You know, I know Ros and Alice well, but the three of us have not been in a room together because of Covid. So I think we had a call. And we basically, you know, we we're trying to work out how to do this, you know, writing a book isn't easy. I didn't know that, but I do know that now. And I was basically went, what I want or what I need or what I needed was comfort, help and hope. And they're all equally important, equal waiting. So the comfort was talking to other people. And I did a lot of the interviews, went out to, to speak to other parents to know that you're not alone is extremely comforting because you feel desperately alone. You know, when this happened to me, I felt I was the only parent of a child of that age, not going to school, I couldn't find anyone else. I mean, the world has actually moved on a bit. And I do hear about it a lot now. But I think it was actually rather different eight years ago. You know, there are more resources there, sort of acknowledging that now help, because actually, you know, I I still wanted things to change. And hope is a, you know, a, a more sort of ephemeral concept but incredibly important you know hearing that other families have gone through stuff that you go through worse than you go through whatever but actually knowing that things change this too will pass is part of the hope mantra so i think actually we nailed it pretty well coming up with that with that as our subtitle
1: Absolutely. And we've had the pleasure of speaking to Professor Ross Schaffer on, on the parents show before. And we know your advice is invaluable. Really, really second to none. But was that a challenge to get those to kind of cover all those bases, comfort, help and hope for parents?
0: That's very kind of you to say that, Lydia. So thank you very much. I think it, it did evolve So we have very different, we're coming from very different places. We have very different skill sets. And in the same way as it's quite difficult when you Google and Ersey Googles, you know, my unhappy child, you've got a lot of techniques to help your unhappy child. We actually didn't want to have a book that strayed into depression. And this is a You know, this book tells you how to address depression. This book tells you how to address anxiety or anger or guilt or jealousy and all of those hidden emotions. We wanted, there are other resources for that. We really wanted to produce a book that had some techniques to help you in the here and now and the techniques that really cut across different problems. So the the techniques that we chose to, or I chose to include in the book are things like problem solving, because problem solving is an evidence-based technique. For depression for anxiety for eating disorders so it cuts across different problems more of the general principles of some cognitive therapy and so on and signposting people to resources where they might find them the stress bucket so those kind of more general techniques that have been shown to work but coupling them with mantras No, there's not been a research trial on the use of mantras but you only have to click on your social media to see that there's a huge take-up and people find them helpful and that there's not one mantra for everybody. So everyone has a personal kind of shortcut. And I think that's another point we really wanted to make in the book. So Ursula's way, idea of a pleasurable activity is to go swimming in a lake in the morning now, if you had to give me a punishment, it would be to go swimming in a lake on a, you know. So I'm with you. <laughs> if, one, if there's one thing that that my work has really taught me, it is that there isn't a one an off the peg solution that works for everybody, and no two people are the same, no circumstances are the same. So we really wanted to express these sorts of principles and give people options. And if a bit doesn't work for them, then that's fine. That won't work for you, but there's something else later on, hopefully in the book, that will be more helpful.
1: And can I just bring you back to mantras? I mean, sorry, Ursula, I'll come back to you in just one second. I feel like I'm a bit out of the loop. What do you mean by mantra?
0: So uh, we just mean those kinds of posters that have little sayings and snippets on that remind you. So Ursula's already said, this too shall pass. That's my screensaver. And uh, we have other ones in the book that are these sorts of shortcuts to things that people might want to remember. So let it go, those sorts of things. Ursula, do you want to add mantras
3: um i think the one that sort of got me through and we kept coming back to as a trio on the call is you are not your child so there's a large section on basically untangling and you know you are not your child is what you you use to sort of ground yourself calm yourself come back to a sort of steady place when things just explode and feel utterly impossible so yeah i'm a huge fan of fan of a mantra and basically the more you know tangled and confused and overwhelmed you are if you can come back to something that just you know resets your settings in a small way and I've, i found you know talking to other parents you know a lot of mantras came out you know i or mantras for certain stages you know so at one point my mantra was i set a very low bar I and mean, it's a very uninspiring mantra but it it kept me sort of where i was i'm not in that mantra at the moment but you are not your child will work for a parent, you know, of whatever age, the parent and the child, I think. Brilliant. Roz.
0: So the, the chapter title for the mantras is called Comfort, Help and Hope in
1: a Nutshell. There you go. That, that kind of explains it all. I hadn't actually just thought about having a mantra to, to get you through. I, th- I think if I was to pick out one that's kind of got me through the pandemic is it's not the end of the world. But at times, let's face it, it did feel a little bit like that great stuff. I mean, sounds, sounds incredibly practical, you know, particularly problem solving because we all need it at some point and being able to do that ourselves as well as impart that knowledge to our children is, is re- really, really important. So can you talk to us? I mean, like, so you're, if your child having issues, every, everybody experiences this at some point, and it is a challenge, but it's even harder when the issues persist, and you have to, as a parent, sustain the support over a long period of time. What kind of issues do you see that causing in parents if, you, if it's a long-term strategy that's needed for parents? Can you give us any advice about that? I suppose, Roz, it would be great if you could start.
0: So over the long term, I think people give up hope. They get very disillusioned and very, very tired, very worn out. I mean, the large number of parents who have to battle You know, there's a battle every day to get the resources for your child to do the best for your child. And so there's a lot of self-neglect because it's just very difficult to prioritize yourself. You're dealing with your child. You're also dealing with the impact on the family more broadly. So on the impact on siblings, on the impact on your relationship. So you're you're firefighting the whole time. And over a sustained period of time, you're exhausted. You haven't got headspace to, to do anything other than go through the daily battle. So I think over time, people become really, sort of, I would say the word learned helplessness from a kind of psychological perspective. There's not, they feel that there's nothing that they can do to make a difference. Um, their mood deteriorates and they feel hopeless and helpless. Can you relate
1: to that, Ursula?
3: Yes. I mean, my, I mean I agree, obviously, with everything Ross says. But I actually think that one of the messages is that, you know, you could get our book and you can read it. It, it does take time, you know. I am better now, you know, with two adult children than I was 8 years ago. You know, I couldn't have read this and turned things around in 6 months. There's a there's a period of time that has to be allowed anyway with longer term stuff, but then you need the hope and the strategies and the persistence and you know, things move through time. So actually, you know, I can look back, I can reframe situations, and although, you know, there's been some some, you know, terribly painful, difficult, embarrassing things, I've actually you know, come across people that I would not have come across if my life had taken a more conventional parenting route. And I'm deeply grateful for that. You see things through a different lens. And you, you can take you can take hope from that. And you can actually think, you know, well, I, you know, I've been helped by these people. Um, I've, I've had windows into these people's lives. That is a privilege. So, you know, you reframe stuff over a longer term as well. You know, you become a different person, essentially. And that's not always a bad thing
1: yeah i think we can we could all relate to that ursula and in, and indeed with every year that passes in in the 8 years that you've been um the period of 8 years you've been talking about there's been so many transitions so many learning episodes and i think we'll only be finished learning when when we're 80 or whatever you know it, it just feels like a never never ending process and we'll only know everything at the end but um you mentioned something about, I think you said, being embarrassing. I'd like to talk about the stigma around, I mean, there's enough stigma for children around mental health and well-being. But for us as parents to be talking about our mental health and well being when your main concern is your child's mental health, and way being is is always deprioritized and even more stigmatized, I would say. What, what are your thoughts on that, Ursula?
3: Well, yes, I mean, it does feel sort of selfish to look at yourself, you know, to even put that Google in, you know, how to be happy when your child is sad. It feels silly and selfish. And writing a book, possibly narcissistic as well. So in all sorts of ways, there is that, that fear. And what it comes to, down to, and I was thinking about that this morning, is the, the biggest thing you can do is not care what other people think. It's the absolutely hardest thing, certainly for me. And, you know, I have moments of thinking I'm moving in this direction, and then I go straight back to square one. So, yeah, the shame of realising that your child is not doing what other people's children are doing at that time. And also I've noticed, I'm not sure if this was a subconscious thing or a a conscious thing, probably a bit of both, and that actually, on the whole, my friendships now are with, you know, people who are younger or people who are older. You know, I've got some older neighbours and friends, I've got younger colleagues, and they are where I put my energies friendship-wise because actually being friends with my peers – you know particularly you know a few years ago was extremely hard because i had to look right in the face of what wasn't going on in my home and see what was going on in there and then the shame the jealousy you know the the sense of inadequacy the sense of what have i done wrong all of that yeah so so it's it's very big the stigma and i think think it remains big but of course the more you talk about it and find friends that understand and you know a few of the parents we spoke to they said you have to be careful with your friendships. You know, you have to be quite brutal about what friendships support you and get you and what friendships don't. And inevitably, you know, your your life will move a little bit as a result. And if you've got social networks, they will change. Or, of course, perhaps you don't have social networks. Perhaps you don't have friends in the first place. And that's an issue. You know, if your child doesn't have friends, we wade into very painful, complicated, and yet very common territory here.
1: And Ursula, I just want to say, Thank you so much for being so honest, because I I think a lot of us aren't that honest about about how painful it is and and about the stigma. And Roz, you must hear this a lot. I I just love to know if you've what you think about it and if you've any words of advice for us.
0: Yeah, so do you do hear it a lot? And feeling selfish for even thinking about yourself, but also. The reality is that when the oxygen mask comes down, it goes over your face before it goes over your child's. And I think that's the kind of principle we were working on with the book. There are different forms of stigma, aren't there? So there's sort of the stigma that society can place on you. But there's also self-stigma and there's self-criticism and there's uh, the kind of blame that you put on yourself for both your child having struggles, but also your inability to solve your child's struggles. And then the fact that actually you yourself are struggling to cope. So there's massive stigma and massive self-criticism internally, as well as the sort of the fear externally. So you're absolutely right. And one one of the things that really struck me about Ursula as a person was her honesty that's how we became friends right from the beginning we were meant to go out very early on in our relationship and she she called me up and she cancelled and she said to me she said I, I just don't feel like it and you know what I didn't feel like it either because how many times have we not felt like it but nobody had ever said to me like everyone lies oh was come up and I just thought wow so Ursula, Ursula does have this really unique ability to be open and honest that I've taken into my own life as much as I can not not always and I think that that's quite helpful in the stigma because actually it's only by really being honest and saying I am struggling to cope and you know what are the long-term implications think building on on the point about losing friendships if your child is struggling to cope and you are with them it's very time consuming so you don't have the time to see friends you don't have the time to go out with friends and social networks when you need them most are the most vulnerable as well. So actually, just almost being given permission in the book to say, you know, actually, if you go out, if you do see your friends for a coffee, instead of doing the housework or doing all the other chores, that's an investment of time. And that's what we say, giving permission to say, that is a really important thing to do. It's not a waste of time. It's a really good use of your time for you, but also for your family.
1: Great advice, Roz. And... And you, you, you said something there, you used a phrase struggling to cope. And actually, I'd love to ask you, what do you do when actually you can't cope? It's not even that you're struggling. You simply can't go on anymore. What do you say to parents who feel like they've just hit a wall and, and they can't go on?
3: I'll start and then move straight over to Roz. We had a conversation several times in this book where we, we would say things like, sometimes if you are breathing, you are coping. We we fully acknowledge that all along the way.
0: I was just going to say something very similar. I When we were writing the book, we sort of had that definition. And one of us sort of did a motor comment, commenter saying, no, is that really what we want our definition to be? And we decided, yes, it is. That is what coping is. It is, you can cry, you can scream, you can slam the door, you can, you know, all of those things. That's a moment where it's not your, it's not how you would like to be coping but it's reality. And actually it's potentially part of coping. It's potentially part of expressing the distress and the emotions. And then you can come back and you can put the dinner on, or then you can calm down and put the dinner on. So there are going to be moments where you cope better than others. And if you really, really can't cope, then that's the time that you get the external people, external agencies to try and help you and get you know the intervention that you need for yourself. And you know, there are lots of massive things that parents are struggling to cope with that are really, really burdensome. And you think you know, people say, how do you cope? I mean, that's very common. And you think I'm not coping, actually owning up to it, getting the help you need informally and formally from the Internet, from re- brilliant radio shows like this. I wouldn't underestimate the importance of sharing information in the way that you do as a way that actually helps people get through it.
3: I'd also like to bring in Alice here. So it would be if Alice was on this call as well, you know, Alice would have a lot to say. Um she sort of brought the whole acceptance piece to this book, and that's been extremely valuable. And also realizing that accepting isn't giving up, you know, that there's a there's a sort of there's a piece of work, you know, there's a you know, there's there's quite a lot of intelligence and quite a lot of. I'm just really struggling to find the words here without sounding too ephemeral. But you know, the, the acceptance is you know a very powerful thing and needs needs work. Although it it, it sounds simple,
0: it's knowing what you can change, and accepting what you know, what you can't change. Um, and knowing the difference between what you can and cannot change. So there are just some things that we have to accept, and that struggling against that is futile and self-destructive. But once you can move to acceptance, although it's a very difficult thing to do, then actually it can be freeing for you, your child, and
1: other family members as well. Sounds like there'd be a good mantra around that. I'm sure sure there's (laughs) <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, that's that's really, really helpful. We've touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to dig a bit deeper into the subject of loneliness because Roz, you said it's so important. You know, skip the dishes, get out and meet a friend for a coffee. You know, it's it's investing time in yourself. I'd I'd like to hear a little bit more around the subject of loneliness because it's what I hear from parents quite a lot, and particularly parents with children with special educational needs. Their children are lonely they're lonely and and i i kind of feel the more we talk about it even particularly parents who don't have children with special educational needs the more those barriers are going to come down
0: yeah so i think it's really it's a really really important point and it's really also critical to draw a distinction between feeling lonely and being socially isolated because they're different things and they need different approaches so if you're socially isolated and you don't have the networks, then there are, it's about how you find those networks and how you find people like you and it, people who understand when you can't come because your child isn't well or is struggling. So that's one aspect to it. But the other of loneliness, sort of the definition of loneliness really is a, a mismatch between your own sort of perception of the quality in your social relationships and the desired quality of your social relationships so you can have and i'm you know you can't see it on the radio i'm doing inverted commas of friends but you don't tell your friends what you're going through it's all pleasantries and so you can have a social network but you don't feel it, they're not meaningful and you don't feel that you can disclose for fear of judgment so you need you need to be able to have both you need the the, the social contact in the first place but within that you also need to find the people in the way that ursi talked about us uh, earlier about actually her peers were not were making her feel more lonely. So her social network had to change to people where she felt she could be open and honest and not in sort of direct comparison with.
1: Ursula, did you want to say something in particular about loneliness or social isolation?
3: I mean, I was definitely, you know, this was one of the the reasons, you know, I wanted to write this book, was that I had never felt so lonely. And I had lots of friends. I had a job. Socially, that hasn't, that's not been any one of my issues. But the loneliness I felt then and for my family. I mean, I my, I was furious with my husband because he wasn't as broken as me. And, you know, my closest friends in many ways weren't in this situation. But, you know, the loneliness was catastrophic. Not for that long. You know, I did get the support. I had, you know, I did have Ros and Alice in my bag. I'm extremely lucky for that reason, you know, I, I, you know, I have this elite network of both experts and friends in those two. So this was a deeply honest collaboration at many points. And that helped me get out of the loneliness and then all the other stuff. Also got a dog. This will make you laugh. We got a puppy and I had never wanted a dog. I'd always been, you know, cats were everything. And eventually, you know, we succumbed to, to pressure and and that dog has filled our house with so much pleasure there's been enough dog to go round. And you know she's a small dog but getting a puppy and I remember taking her out I think my husband was away from work and so I was looking after her on my own I took her out I think about 3am for a little wee on the lawn and it was spring and there was a big full moon rising and I just thought something is shifting I think that was the first moment I sensed that you know there was a something had lightened in me And then just looking after this dog, a really simple form of, you know, I think some people have a nightmare with puppies. We were very lucky. We had a very easy puppy. I'd had very difficult babies. So the contrast was extreme. Suddenly I could do this. It was working. This caregiving relationship was working. The dog was delighted to see me, delighted to see all of us. And so, you know, from a loneliness perspective, that dog definitely filled a hole.
1: (laughs) that's fantastic and i you're definitely not alone in feeling like that that unconditional love particularly from dogs is they're yeah, uh, not good for
3: the planet as someone yeah. who works well. <laughs> be careful
1: okay so the the structure of the book is you have resources you've got techniques and you also rely on on parent stories is is that a good kind of overview of of the structure of the book and
0: I, I think so, with a with a big chunk
1: of acceptance at the end. I like that. I uh, Ursula.
3: And we do say, I mean, you know, Ros mentioned earlier, you know, we had it's not everything is for everyone. We we've we've opened a conversation here. This is the first thing that resource that we've found that is looking at this particular conversation, looking at the happiness of the parents instead of focusing on the children. It's for the parents. Well, it
1: I think I, I think it will appeal to parents and it certainly will resonate.
3: Yes, so I was going to say, and so we've got sections that, so there's a section on boundaries. Boundaries have never worked for me. Boundaries have made things hugely worse, but useful to have in there, but fine to leave it. You know, there's a lot of take it or leave it. There'll be be something for everyone in there. I'm convinced of it, but, you know, it's, and you can dip in. We haven't written it such that, you know, because again, we talked earlier about when you're coping, how very difficult it can be. Sometimes, you know, reading a book can feel impossible absolutely, you know, far too big a task. But actually, you could just sort of open up at any page and possibly find something that will give you a little bit of a handhold at a certain point. And it was very much written with that in mind. Would you agree, Ros?
1: Yes, I definitely would agree. Hmm. And that's for my menopausal brain. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, like music <laughs> to my ears. Thank you so much for doing it like that. Because as you say, like reading a whole book is is Herculean for me right now. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak to us and for writing this book. And before I let you go, I'd love to hear from both of you what you think are, are, are the top tips for parents coming out of this book or your wise words. I mean, we, we've heard some along the way, but just before we wrap up, Roz, over to you first.
0: It's, it's very difficult because of the, all the things we've talked about before, but I think if If you have limited time and you just need to have one thing, it's just to allow yourself to engage in some positive activities, brief, work with your family life without guilt, because actually it's for
1: everybody. Brilliant. Thank you, Rats. Ursula.
3: Top tips. Um, the mantras, am I? Just move yourself in in very in small, manageable, bite-sized portions. And again, I do remember a conversation with Rose where I was in a meltdown about something or other, and she just said, "Okay, you know, you can't control this situation, but you can control your reaction to it." And I again, that's another thing. I think I think, okay, I can't manage this. All impossible. What piece of this can I manage? So you know, there's always something you can do. Hopefully. Fantastic,
1: Ros Ursula. Thank you so much for joining us on the Parents Show. I think we don't need to tell people how they can find the book. You just Google it. How to Cope When Your Children Can't. I mean, it hasn't been released at this point when we're having this conversation. Release date is in the end of February, is it?
0: It's actually. I think it's the twenty fourth, so it actually is imminent. Or at the very latest, it should be the twenty fifth. But if we could, if you like the book, could you please write a review? Because if you write books, then actually getting reviews out is really important to encourage other people as well to read it. So if you like the book, please do leave a review. If you don't like the book, if you don't. Like it, don't. <laughs> if you don't, I was going to say, if you don't like it, let us know personally and we can uh, see what we can do to improve it going forward.
1: And you can, of course, pre-order actually on on several several websites, very easy to find how to cope when your children can't. I have to say, like Roz and Ursula, your friendship and and the combination of your expertise Roz, and and your very, very normal experience, Ursula, is brilliant. It's such a great reason to write a book and, and, I, and I think great things will come from it I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it.
0: Thank you so much, thank you so much for having us, and thank you for a fantastic conversation. really appreciate the opportunity.
3: Thank you.